hot off the press, Piers. The Piers Project has teamed up with our dear friend and renowned not-for-profit organisation, Little Dreamers Australia, to produce a brand spanking new podcast. If you've ever wished there was a subject called How to Handle Your Money 101, this is it. The Money Matters podcast is here to demystify the world of money and help young carers take control of their money, one transaction at a time. Tune into the Money Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or just head straight to the link in this episode's description. Now let's get into this episode. This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, Peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, Peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. And we're back with another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Communication. The term is trending, but the meaning's been lost. There's no topic that this rings more true for than money. Despite being a commodity we all rely on, we aren't all part of this conversation. Young people, immigrants, and those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds make up a large and influential fabric of our society. So why don't they have a seat at the table? In a world that runs on literacy, we have failed to provide financial literacy to all. In many ways, we've failed to communicate what it means to who it means the most to. Realising there was work to be done, Kate Crowhurst decided to be part of the change rather than wait for it. As a Cambridge alum with a background in teaching, Kate developed Money Bites, a content-led platform that provides accessible and actionable information on financial literacy. In this inspiring episode, Kate shares how economic disparity inspired change, why a team is essential for change, and how we are all capable of making the world better. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay. Without further ado, welcome, Kate. Kate, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Awesome. So, you know, you and I connected recently via LinkedIn. And, you know, when I looked into you and all of the amazing work that you're doing in the financial literacy and the politics space, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. I've looked at your previous guests and it's just like, wow. So this is great. Uh-huh. 
<laughs> no, I, I, I love that. Um, you 100% fit straight in. Um, perfect. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm one of those people who I guess has to have a day job, but then loves doing multiple things. So a uh, day job is in government and passion project that I'd love to do at some point. I'm sure many of us have that same scenario where we have something and we love, we can't necessarily do full time just yet, um, is financial literacy. So making sure more young people understand it and something I do on the side as well, because I believe that young people should be connecting across borders is be the Australian and New Zealand ambassador of something called One Young World, which I'm currently wearing the jumper of. So. <laughs> love it. You're repping it all. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. So look, I can't wait to dive deeper into your work and all of the goodness there, but I guess I want to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, what did your parents do and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? It's probably my mum. So my mum was a teacher and I think that's really, really something that's impacted me because she was specifically an ESL teacher. So English is a second language, sometimes called English is additional language. And I think that's impacted me because I really believe in the power of communication, but also the fact that her methodology is if the other person doesn't understand you, that's your fault, not their fault, because they already speak a language and you're just educating them in a specific language. And it's your job to make that as easy as possible for them, not the other way around. And I think that's really fascinating because a lot of the time, particularly you know, even when I came to Australia, if you don't know something, people are often more judgmental and it's, it's on you to learn. And she used to flip it and know it's on you to make sure that you're explaining it in a way the other person can get. And it's on you to change your communication up to suit whoever you're speaking to. And I think that's impacted on me in terms of seeing the world slightly differently and seeing it from another person's perspective first. It's also my parents let me grow up in the Middle East and that's something I won't forget. I, I loved growing up there because I went to a school that had... I think it was into the 80s in terms of nationalities. You had people growing up in mostly mixed households like mine. And I think it was really important to see that that's completely normal and that's how it should be. So coming from that to a slightly different culture was, yeah, it was a bit of an eye opener. Um, but that was honestly the best gift. And being able to speak Arabic, albeit badly now, but also get exposure to lots of different languages while I was there and be able to speak them, have a basic understanding of them. I, I would love to get that gift to my kid. That would be fantastic. Wow. That's so amazing. So you obviously grew up in the UK. Whereabouts in the UK was that? And then when did you make that move to um, the Middle East? And, and how long were you there for? Talk to us about that. Yeah. So interestingly, I've really never lived in the UK until I was I was in my um, 20s when I lived in the UK. So if you grow up in the Middle East and you go to an international school, you're either going to come out with an American accent or a British accent so I have this accent thanks to my teachers, so thanks to my parents living in the UK for a spell. And that's the only reason I have this accent. And then when I speak to English people, they don't know where I'm from. And I'm almost like the Siri of the English-speaking world. They go, you sound English-ish, but we don't know where you're from. So yeah, that is the only reason I have this accent is the school I went to having quite a few English people around me and my parents have an English tilt as well. But my mum was born and raised in Cyprus, so... Yeah, it's it's slightly different. Yeah, I love that. And I love that this idea of the, you know, mixed cultures and 
also this idea of the different languages. I think that, I mean, for me personally, that stands out. I was, you know, fortunate enough to study Chinese and French and et cetera. And, and I think, you know, for those of us who have been fortunate enough to be exposed to these different cultures and these unique languages, it really does open your, open your mind up. You know, at what age do you think, you know, that it, that the different languages and the different cultures really started to set in for you? And I guess then how did that, shape your childhood and I guess what you wanted to do with your life and how you saw the world. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the main thing for me was just seeing that it was okay from a very young age to know multiple languages. And indeed, most people did. And if you didn't know multiple languages, that was the strange thing. So I think it's just something that was always there. And then particularly when I came here and people started going, oh, wow, you speak different languages. I'm like, yeah, but everyone does that. So I think, you know, there's often a lot of privilege that comes from living in an environment where there's a lot of international people around you. It was really interesting. The funniest thing I saw was a lot of the wealth disparity. I think people can stereotype, if you grow up overseas, you're wealthy. Not necessarily. So it was really interesting to me. Maybe when I was about 10, 11, I started to notice that, you know, friends of mine had a lot more money. Someone was uh, 12 years old and they had their own driver and their own car. And I, yeah, and I suddenly went... That's really strange because we carpool and there's a whole load of kids in the back and to have your own car. I wonder why that and just starting being curious about, I guess, wealth and income was kind of my wake up because um, language was something that was everyone should know, everyone should learn so that you can communicate with as many people as you can. Wealth was really the thing that stood out to me, particularly when I entered um, near to my teen years. It was just the, oh, this is different and just starting to really see that kind of difference in terms of what people could buy, what they had available to them, that kind of thing. I find that fascinating and it makes a lot of sense now. Isn't it funny? It's almost those things that happen in our childhood or when we were growing up that just confuse us so much that we we want to learn so much more about it. So I guess, yeah, I would love to dive a bit deeper into that. So, you know, talk to us a little bit about those early days when you were just thinking about, you know, finance and and wealth and and the disparity. And then I guess, you know, as you headed out of your teenage years and you you ended up obviously going to university, I think you were in Australia, you went to University of Melbourne education and bachelor's in education and later on Cambridge, you know. So talk to us about, I guess, that transition from your teens through to your early 20s. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, it was a little bit different because I think a lot of people can relate to this, that when you move in your teens, that's not the best time to move someone. <laughs> so I moved in my very late teens and I was um, had a few more years left of school and moved here and they basically went, you may as well just go to uni. <laughs> so, <laughs> Wow. Yeah, so did a, a, a tiny bit of school and then just went straight into uni and I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I'm very thankful for my mum to providing a little bit of an example of when you're 20 and you have almost about to graduate university, you have no idea what to do. One of the best things you can do with your years is to become a teacher. So luckily I had her example to draw on. And then it was just deciding where to go. And for me, it was where you were most needed. So I looked at the low socioeconomic suburbs of Australia and basically specifically requested to go to one that had kids predominantly from the Middle East because I wanted to keep up my Arabic, but also... I know that I had quite an easy time getting in the country. Others don't. So I wanted to pay that forward and make sure that I was giving other young people from the Middle East similar opportunities. So I went to a suburb called Broadmeadows in Australia, um, which is low socioeconomic and had the great experience of teaching kids from there, both ESL, like my mum, 
becoming a mother when in your 20 is uh, yeah, it's pretty disturbing. So exactly the same thing, but also history, English, and a variety of other subjects. But the one thing that really, I guess that curiosity that was still there was money. And despite the fact we were in a low socioeconomic suburb and you were with students who would need to know how to manage money more so than any other suburb around us, we weren't teaching financial literacy. We weren't actually teaching them how to manage that money. It was almost... It was almost like a lottery of what they were going to be told based on who their parents were, based on whatever that they could pick up. And I think that just started to gnaw at me. I think a lot of people may empathise that when you have that idea or that feeling and it just doesn't go away and it comes uncomfortable, that's when you have to do something about it. So I researched it at the University of Melbourne just in terms of why is it an issue and why does it disproportionately affect some more than others not having this knowledge and then was lucky enough to go get a scholarship to the University of Cambridge and studied what it looked like nationally and what access specifically looked like. Because I think access is a huge issue when it comes to this knowledge. So I think what really guided me is being curious about an idea. And then finally, it becoming so uncomfortable that you couldn't do anything but pursue that idea. That was the real driving force. I find it so fascinating because, you know, so many of us, maybe we feel that discomfort and we just, you know, we think, oh my goodness, something needs to be done about this. But, you know, most of the time it's scary to actually go, you know, I'm actually going to research that or I'm actually going to go out and try that or I'm going to speak to that person. You know, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who maybe they know they've got to act, but something's holding them back? What advice would you give to them? My advice would probably be just do it and jump because you'll find out more from having to struggle in the water than you would have done the sidelines feeling uncomfortable. It's the same for why I started my own um, organisation in the space and started to reach out to other organisations. I was in a very cushy job doing something in financial literacy, which I love as a topic, but I could see that the impact wasn't there and I could see it. And I was like, no, I'm fine. It's fine. Someone else will do this. I'll I'll just stay. And one thing I wish I'd done, I wish I'd jumped in sooner and been uncomfortable struggling, but being in new water where I was actually making a difference and actually acting on that feeling. So I would say be financially responsible. And if you're leaving your job, save an emergency fund first, but absolutely jump in as soon as you can, because that's where the real learning happens is from that struggle. So true. I love it. So I want to dive deeper into the story. So, you know, you get to the UK and you're you, you're starting your, I saw you did like a thesis on this, you know, talk to us about that time there. I saw that you also, I think you did some writing for the Telegraph or one of the newspapers over there, you know, talk to us about, yeah, what that experience was like. Once again, another move, you know, you'd come to Australia, you'd moved here, then you moved to the UK, you know, was it easier? Was it harder? talk to us about that time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I loved Cambridge. I, I I could never afford to go to Cambridge. I was there on a scholarship. And I think for me, it's really hammered home that if I ever make enough money to do so, I need to pay that forward and give someone else a scholarship. So I was lucky enough to get a scholarship that was specifically for people in the educational space who'd made the kind of moves I had. And it was there. And I was like, oh, this is just, this is just lined up so well. Because um, it wasn't something that was normally available. It just sat there accumulating. So I was really lucky that it came up when I wanted to go. Cambridge was honestly best year of my life. It's, it's like Hogwarts on steroids. You enter a room and I did 
a really specific course around education and politics. So it was it was tailor made. And I walked into a room and there was a very small group of 14 students, all of whom had the same kind of passion, but were from all different areas of the world. So automatically really solid in well, because you're in a room with people who have completely different areas of specialization, but all have this one driving passion around education and issues like access, issues like who the curriculum's actually written for and about. That was that was incredible because it enabled you to be really vulnerable. It enabled you to explore ideas. And you had a group of people in that room who I still talk to, who are lifelong friends. And I, I loved it. But easily um, the hardest decision was I was actually accepted for a PhD and to stay at Cambridge. And the hardest decision was to leave and go to government roles in Canberra, Australia. It was so difficult. I, um, Yeah, it was a tough call to make. I think for me... It came down to, I had a fantastic thesis supervisor, great topic, but the reality, and PhD students will know this, is it's taking longer and longer to actually get a PhD. And often it can be something that you finish and then put on your wall or put in the cupboard rather than something that's actually an exchange. And that was the hardest thing was to walk away from, you know, three, four more years in an environment I loved. I love the people. You had access to great opportunities and walking away was the hardest thing. So I, I will absolutely go back. And the great thing about being in that environment, it gives you additional opportunities you didn't know were even accessible. So the Telegraph came up because, you know, someone knew someone who wanted to hear from students who were writing about education while being in that environment. And it just all fit in. They wanted to hear about financial literacy. They wanted to hear about democratic education. So it's really interesting. The one advice I give to anyone listening is a lot of those opportunities are at your university. You just need to find them. And that came from a conversation with someone about what I was studying. I talk to lots of different people and see what comes up. That would probably be my advice to anyone because I've been at universities, including those in Australia, and those opportunities, very similar to write for publications are there. So if there's something you're passionate about, reach out and ask. I love it. Oh my goodness, it just gave me chills when you talked about Cambridge. I think, you know, it's one of those universities that you hear of and you read of, but when you said Hogwarts, I'm sure, you know, our peers out there listening probably are also feeling the feels. So I guess a question I've got from that was, you know, you said you had that tough decision to make, right? You you could either go and continue on in this almost fantasy amazing world and 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 continue on there for a couple more years, or you could, you know, step out into the real world and 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 go come back to Oz and do what you had to do. You know, when we're faced with those tough decisions, you know, what do we do? You know, what would be your advice on how can we get clear on what the best path is for us? And then I guess how do we then make peace with our decision? A hundred percent. I, you know, got out the A3 paper and started making heaps of pros and cons lists, brainstorming if I pick this, what would happen in five years time, et cetera, et cetera, for the other side as well. And I think the thing I ultimately had to come down to is I may as well flip a coin because, and this is the best decision-making trick I've been told. If you flip a coin, that's your decision. And if you're really unhappy and emotional at the decision and you hate it and you want to rail against it, pick the other one. That's the best decision-making tool anyone's ever given me. And that was, that was kind of my, um, that was kind of my push is I just went, you know, I think it may have landed on Cambridge. And they went, but will that actually deliver the result I want to see in five years time? Probably not. It's got to be the other one. 
And the other thing I'd say to anyone who's in that situation is make peace with whatever decision you make in terms of just just do it. Get on with it and don't look back. Because the easiest thing is to go, oh, I missed out on, you know, three, four years in a perfect environment, which is absolutely true. I did. But it was my choice to make. And someone else would have taken that spot and probably appreciated it more than I would because they'd be 100% committed to that decision. So the only thing you can do is keep going with what you've got. And you can always go back as well. Um, so I fully intend on going back at some stage, probably to write a better written thesis than I could have written in the first place because I've actually had more experience behind the idea to make it better, to make it more informed. So hopefully the experience means that I get the PhD done rather in less than five years, um, which is the goal for anyone nowadays. How can we get better at owning our decisions? Yeah, I really struggle with this one. My thing would be is to not look back as much as possible. Um, I think a lot of us are in the scenario where we ruminate. I certainly do. And I think you need people around you who will care about you enough to tell you that you need to move on and will be harsh with you when you're ruminating. Because I ruminate all the time, particularly about, oh, is this okay? Is this okay? However, that behavior does bring in the element of indecision where you're stuck. So What you need is someone who will push you to make a decision, particularly when you're sitting on the fence and refusing to do so. But also when you're ruminating, when you're going, oh, I wish if, or oh, I wonder if, we'll go, but that didn't happen. This happened. So what are you going to do next? Because that's ultimately all you can do is just make decisions with what you have in the time where you are, in the scenario that you're actually in, and then try and create the future you want to see from there. I love it. Amazing. And so Let's talk about money bites. So I want to move on to that. So, you know, you talked about, you know, at this stage of come back to Oz, you're working in government again, you know, I guess, where did the frustration, you kind of touched on it before, but I'd like to dive deeper, where did the idea for money bites come about? And what were the first few steps you took to really get that off the ground? Yeah, absolutely. I think it came about because I was seeing a lack of young people in the space. And potentially the term is financial literacy itself as a term makes you want to fall asleep. It really does. Like It's boring as hell. And it excludes people from the conversation who go finance, ugh, which is completely fair. Despite the fact we all use money day to day, we all go out and buy our coffee this morning. We all go out and take the train to get to work. There's so many things that we have to do along the way. And money touches all, but only certain people are included in that conversation. And that was really frustrating to me, but also seeing it was only people from certain socioeconomic circumstances who were allowed to lead or be part of those conversations. And again, not necessarily coming from those circumstances, I was getting really frustrated and I wasn't seeing young people at all involved in it. It was, it was me and lots of older people having this conversation. And I just went, this isn't right. It isn't because if we're talking about young people, it needs to be something that's designed by and for them. It can't be something that's given to them as a gift. It has to be something that they're actively involved in and creating themselves. So ultimately, the thing that made the biggest difference to me is I went to the One Year World Conference in 2018 in The Hague, and I got very uncomfortable in the audience because the whole conference, and partly why I still am involved with that organization, is so impactful because it pushes you to do something afterwards. It's not a nice conference you go to, sit in the audience, and then go home. You're put in front of amazing people who've made a difference, who at the end of every talk, it seems, are going, and you must go and do something. And I was like, oh, you're so right. And I went there with the idea. And Damn it. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, guys, 
Um, Got me again. It is, particularly Bob Geldof and his speeches on this topic. It, it, it just gets really uncomfortable. It's to the point where, you know, you're fully aware that you're the person in the room who could make a difference, not just by yourself as like a solo entrepreneur, but with other young people gathering together to make a change. And I think it gets to the point, particularly for me, where I was sitting there and I went, I can't justify the decision I'm currently making to stay put and not do anything or the decision to stay in a cushy job and know that there's a problem, but just stay because it's nice. So it took a, it took me just jumping and having a leap of faith. And at this stage, I'm still working out a revenue model for it to be financially sustainable, but I can sleep at night knowing that it's something and it's getting consistent high traffic and it's meeting a need for young people. So at the moment, it's a blog because I could see there wasn't, wasn't a lot of content. There are blogs out there for finance, but not a lot of them are written by young people in Australia. There's a lot of Americans um, and Americans are really in this space, but there's not a lot of Australians in this space. So that was what I want to do as priority. And second thing is a podcast to normalize conversations about money. Hence why I love the world of podcasting. I think what you guys do is fantastic. And the third thing we're looking to do is to remove the access barrier in schools because that's still an access barrier for a lot of people. And just making sure that wherever you are in, ed- in terms of your education, you can get access to this knowledge so that you have a hope of paying back your hex debt, but also you're able to build up some sense of financial independence because that's so important that we give people, particularly young people, the power to make their own decisions and having the money to back them when they make those decisions. Oh, it's so powerful. It's so great. I love it. So I guess I'd love to talk a bit more about the juggling of the two. You know, as you said, you, you're you like, I've got to get myself sorted personally, financially, so I'm going to stay in my day job and I'm going to build this thing up on the side. You know, it's not easy, you know, to, to kind of juggle, juggle both of them. What would be your tips, advice? How's that experience been for you? How long has that period been? And yeah, I guess what's kind of your view of this, of this just kind of juggling the two things? Absolutely. So I jumped at the end of 2018, but I did a soft jump into doing it as a side hustle. For me, I think the main issue is time and energy. I have a demanding day job. um, So I'm an executive officer, which means that you are there whenever anyone needs you. You're constantly doing something. You're constantly problem solving. It's great training if anyone gets the opportunity to do it because you're constantly problem solving, being given weird and wacky problems and being told, work it out, provide a solution, which is fantastic. 2020, I think, is the year no one could have seen coming. 2020 was when I was planning to maybe take a bit of a step back, do a lot of what people do, which is go part-time so that you have more time to give to the thing that you love. 2020 for Australia has, however, brought bushfires, flood, hail, and now COVID. And I specifically look at industry and how we can strategically position ourselves in terms of businesses and industry more broadly. So this has not been quiet period. It's been insane hours at the day job, which have been needed and which, you know, you can't be resentful for because that's just what it takes. But I think it's the reality of if one thing is pulling you, the other is not getting your time. So for me, it really exposed the power of needing a team behind it so that if I do get busy, it will still continue. And I think a lot of us get attached to the idea of being a solo entrepreneur because it's our baby, it's what we love. But the biggest thing for me and the biggest learning of 2020 is the need to build a team so that something and an idea that's so important doesn't rely on you to drive it forward. So that's the big adv- advice I could give is 
quicker in the journey than I did, build a team around it, bring people in so that the idea can still flourish without you. Because ultimately it's the change that matters. It's not so much your involvement and you as a person or your resume. It's the actual change that matters and the actual delivery and impact that's happening to other people who your change is actually for. I love that. Oh, so great. Um, Kate, you and I could talk for days. I'm loving this. I'm, I've got a couple, as you know, as, as we start to wrap up, I've got a couple final questions for you. I guess the first one is, and you may have already touched on it, but what has been, I guess, one of your main challenges really in this entrepreneurial journey to date? I think it's having the confidence to back yourself. When you look at who our entrepreneurs are, we do have some fantastic examples, such as Melanie Perkins from Canva, but there aren't a huge number of publicized strong examples of women in the entrepreneurial space who've backed themselves. So I think confidence is probably my main issue and having the confidence both to back yourself to take a huge jump, but also to leave the civility of a job early, to have access to capital, to build up your resources. Potentially there are things that aren't necessarily there. We know that venture capital isn't being provided as equally to men as women. But for me, it's not so much the access, but the confidence to ask and the confidence to do. So it's also potentially the fact that I don't have an entrepreneurial background to draw on. I know a lot of entrepreneurs and I've met them and they're so lucky because, you know, their friends are entrepreneurs, their parents are entrepreneurs, which is fantastic. If you have it, I look at those journeys and I go, I would love to have been having those conversations at the kitchen table. But if you come from a more traditional background where you're just told, get a safe job, stay in it, and just put your head down and work as much as possible. I think it does take a certain level of confidence to take the jump. So for me, I picked the safest job in the world of being a teacher when I was 20. And since then, I've taken more risky steps. And I think along the way, it's been slowly building up the confidence to do that and go, you know what? Economic crashes have always happened. They are inevitable. The main thing is that it's not so much that you're in a safe job and you have these dreams that you might not act on. It's that you're taking the risk you're trying and you're building up an emergency buffer behind you so that if the worst does go wrong, you can back yourself because you've got the money there that's sitting there as an emergency fund. So confidence, taking the risk and building up your own examples to draw on if you don't necessarily have them from your childhood or from the people you're around. Love it. Amazing. And what has been, you know, it's always the bad things, but what has been your greatest failure that you think you've personally had to date throughout, you know, trying to get the, the business going? I think not taking risks is honestly my greatest failure and not building up that team sooner. Um, I think a lot of the time we can go, I'm doing what I set up to do. I'm fine for now. I think the power of a team is that they push you to do more. So for me, I could go, cool, we've got a moderately successful blog. Yep, we're done. I've achieved what I wanted to do. But that wouldn't achieve the change that I actually set out to. That would just be really comfortable for now. And the biggest failure is not having a team in place who will push you at all times to go, Mm-mm, that's, that's not change. That's, that's great for you. But is that delivering the changes you want to see in terms of barriers to the knowledge, in terms of engaging people at different stages of their life? Is this what you actually want to do? That would probably be my greatest failure today. And we're still looking to build the team. So if anyone is listening to this and going, oh, I would love to do something in this space, then please do. Because my second failure is not having the courage to ask. I, a lot of the time, don't want to put people out. So I make an assumption that they don't want to hear from me. And I count myself out before I've even asked. 
And something I'm still working on is having the courage to approach and having the courage that the worst thing they could say is no. That's the worst thing I could say. You're not putting them out by asking them. Just a simple question. So that's probably my greatest failure today. But what I'm actively looking at and really trying every day to go, right, who do I need to contact? Yes, they might be busy. Yes, they might say no, but ask anyway. So if anyone is listening to this, though, and genuinely wants to create some kind of change, but it's a bit time poor, put your hand up and please get in touch. Because I think ultimately, it's not going to require specialists to fix this problem. I've got degrees in this subject. It's going to require a team of people who are passionate that actually fixes financial literacy and addresses the skills gap for young people in this country. So if you're looking to that, please get in touch because ultimately I cannot do this on my own. Awesome. No, it's so great. And I'm, I'm excited to add that to the show notes as well. We'll add a link to so people can get in touch. Okay. Oh, it's, it's been so amazing. Look, over the last few years, you've, you've really gone from strength to strength. You know, you've received so much recognition for your work, all, although that you're still, you know, in the early days, you've been featured on the Forbes 30 under 30 list, to name a few. You know, what are three key pieces of, of advice that you'd give to our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? Yeah, absolutely. My main thing, I, you would have noticed I've not mentioned awards once. Um, <laughs> I'm like, she's on the Forbes and the 30 list. <laughs> My main piece of advice would be to treat everyone equally as you find them. I think a lot of people, and I've seen this even with my peer group, as they've got more successful, they start to just focus on certain people in a conversation and they don't acknowledge everyone equally. And my number one thing would be to always acknowledge everyone equally in a room because you don't know who holds what role. Best advice I can give is that because when I was working at a bank, I was on reception and you see everyone come in. These are for private clients and they would treat you in lots of different ways. Some of them would acknowledge you and some of them would pretend that you were the dirt on their shoe, no matter what you said to them. And once someone came in and a banker asked me my opinion of whether or not they should go into business with them. And that's happened more than once. Someone came for an interview for a job once and they turned around and went, what did you make of them? How did they interact with you? And I give that advice because even the receptionist might have a say in whether or not you get a business deal or whether or not you get hired. So be kind to everyone and acknowledge everyone equally because you never know what the scenario is happening behind the scenes and whether or not their opinion of you might be drawn on. So definitely take the time to do that. Second piece of advice would be pursue a goal that isn't necessarily an established road. And I say that because a lot of the time when it comes to careers, education at school, we're told that, you know, be a teacher, for example, be a doctor, be a lawyer, pick a thing out the hat that already exists. I think we're in an age where we can be much more flexible about that. We're going to have multiple careers throughout our lifetime. Pick the thing that you want to do right now that you can see having an impact for the next five, maybe 10 years, but don't be afraid to change course. If I'd stayed doing the same thing, I'd still be in one school, in one suburb, having singular impact. But I think today it's a lot more easy and we need to give ourselves permission to pivot throughout our career and try different things. So if you're a young person listening to this, or indeed if you're a parent and you're trying to pick the career out the hat, don't put too much stress on it. Pick whatever feels right right now and whatever is interesting and engaging to them right now is their passion, because that will likely change over time. And it's absolutely fine that it does. And probably my main thing and the thing I wish I'd done more of is seek your own sources of inspiration. So 
when I was growing up, that was Queen Rania of Jordan because she was an amazing example of leadership, someone who was passionate about education, who'd already trained in a professional career before she entered the royal family. And I think it's finding your own examples of people that you find inspiring. And you don't necessarily need to justify those. Another inspiration for me, who I actually named in the Forbes 30 Under 30, is someone called Ian Hislop, who's run a satirical magazine called Private Eye since the very start of his career and his uni days. And he's someone who I really admire because he's constantly funny. He thinks that satire should include, you know, really everything. Everything should be up for debate. Everything should be debated. And... I think it's that willingness to engage in ideas that I find so inspiring about him. So find a variety of role models, find a variety of inspiration that you want to put on your wall that you want to remember. Because ultimately, being an entrepreneur is hard and juggling a day job with a business is hard. And when you get to the point where you're going to give up and you go, oh, this is it for me, having those inspirations to draw on is really important. And, you know, even if it's someone like Ian Hislop, who is incredibly funny and you draw on because you know that at the end of the day where something hasn't gone right and you're feeling a bit jaded, he's going to make you laugh. Find people who are going to lift you up in those times or who you really want to role model yourselves on. Find a variety of them and be willing to draw on them at any stage because that is completely exclusive of your circumstances. Whether or not you have entrepreneurs in your family or around you as friends, you can create your own circle through those examples that you can draw on, that you can tap into when you need them. And that will ultimately keep you going if you're driven to make change in a specific area. Kate, ladies and gentlemen, oh my goodness, that was amazing. And we have had a blast. Where can people learn more about you and Money Bites? Absolutely. So we've gone for moneybites.com. So if you go to moneybites.com, you can read more about our content. You can get free access to financial resources across Australia. But please get in contact because ultimately we are still building our team and we want to hear from people from different walks of life who can provide insights or indeed provide value that we can't see yet when it comes to this problem. So please um, go to moneybytes.com, get in contact to our contact page. You can also find us at an upcoming podcast that will be released and any of our social channels, which... Not being a social media star, I am attempting to <laughs> I am attempting to draw on. So if indeed if you have those skills, please get in contact. So because again, we're not gonna fix this problem by ourselves. Love it. Amazing. We'll link them up in the show notes. I just want to say as as we as we come to the close, Kate, that I you know, I want to take a moment to acknowledge you for the phenomenal work that you've done and that you're doing, for really showing us, and particularly us, you know, young people in this world that if we have a passion, if we see a problem, we can actually go out and make it happen. And we don't have to, you know, let go of our day jobs to make that change. And so we really appreciate you for that. Thank you. This podcast is incredible. So thank you for providing a daily dose of inspiration. Oh, love it. Amazing. Well, thanks so much. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Piers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. 
to see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>